Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. The heat is on investors. Global markets are erupting, the coronavirus is spreading, and an outlier presidential candidate, this time from the left, is gaining steam. Simmering in the background are potentially disruptive geopolitical concerns, including trade relations with China and tensions with Iran. Joining us to assess their significance for investors is Nicholas Bonsack, co-founder and partner of Strategus Research Partners, which has been voted a top macro research firm for three years in a row by institutional investors. Nick is also CEO of the firm's Asset Management Division, which manages separate accounts for institutions and high net worth individuals. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on WealthTrack. Thank you, Consuelo. What are you telling clients about the coronavirus and its short-term and possible long-term economic impact? Yeah, you know, the the short-term is probably more worrisome, and and I think we're seeing the market and and by extension, investors react to that very acutely. Uh, this past week, uh, the market was down in general terms, you know, eight to nine percent, uh, just coming off of uh, off of recent highs, and that's that's a fairly dramatic response to what I think we would broadly characterize as an unknown. This is definitely an acceleration of risk uh, from when we first started globally hearing about corona in uh, the coronavirus in the middle of January. And into late January, we really felt that this would start to introduce some volatility uh, to the market, some uh, some disruptive, um, some dis- some disruption to the, the overall market, and that's certainly coming to pass. I think where the concern lies now is how are we going to define transitory? Mm-hmm. Right? As, as we went through this initially, we we used and a lot of folks use the word transitory. This too shall pass. It looks to be a little bit extended. It looks that the reach is going to be a little bit broader. Uh, and that starts to introduce some very real questions about uh, the sustainability uh, of, of the broader equity rally and the durability of economic growth as we move into the second half of the year. Right now, we remain optimistic, but we really need to start to explore that in part. Right. So I, I was you know, just looking at a, a note uh, that you sent out to clients in late January, which really kind of was before the coronavirus outbreak became you know, like global headline news. And you were telling clients then to consider raising cash and getting a little bit more defensive in the short term. I'm, I'm reading actually from it, uh, but because of its impact on global growth. So um, when you're talking about, you know, consider raising cash and getting a little bit more defensive, what do you think you're telling clients now? Yeah. So I, I think it's important to, to take that statement uh, and recommendation in the context of how important China has become to the global supply chain. Uh, you know, China represents uh, about 35% of uh, global gross output, which is up significantly uh, over the past decade. And importantly, it also has taken share in what we might describe as final assembly uh-huh. uh, of goods as opposed to of, of intermediate goods. So the, dif- the dislocation to supply chains can be very acute. That said, if the virus whether we felt so in late January or we feel so now, if the virus is is becomes more easily contained or the global operators start to have a sense that it has become contained, we can we can evidence a very uh, dramatic V-shaped or whipsaw recovery in all of these different elements. And so it really becomes a measurement of of how much activity we lost and, and won't retrieve. And and right now, to your question, we remain optimistic on the back half of the year. I think it's fair to suggest that uh, there's going to be some uh, activity that we're, we're not going to recover. Uh, and then the second component of that 
is that when we were thinking about this in January and then to a series of successive new highs in in February, the market was at all-time highs and, mm-hmm. and valuations had become a little stretched. So it didn't take much of a catalyst to tip this market over, but the underlying economy remains in pretty good remains pretty firm and in pretty good standing. The U.S. economy or? The U.S. economy, but even to an extent, Consuelo, the global economy. Mm -hmm. Um, We've started to see some recovery in Europe, albeit off of low numbers. Uh, We started to see a recovery in emerging markets even before uh, we saw so in the United States. And so uh, right now, those those tenants have not been entirely negatively impacted or irrecoverably impacted. But again, as I mentioned, China is such an important cog in the broader global economy that you know, if we continue on this course of uncertainty into, say, March or April, you know, we run a real risk of, of elevating the, the likelihood of a recession. Right. And, you know, China, let's just speak specifically about China because it is, is the epicenter, at least it was the epicenter. We know that significant portions of its economy have been shut down in the first quarter. Um, and reportedly, China is now screening visitors from countries where coronavirus has spread, South Korea and Japan, for instance. Uh, you know, they're kind of saying they don't want it to repatriate back into the country. So what's your assessment of the damage to uh, China's economy? And also, you know, forgive me for saying this, but uh, do you believe that really that the virus has, you know, there's been a downward turn in uh, in cases and that, that China is really that the worst in China of the coronavirus outbreak is behind it. Yeah. So uh, let me take the Western sort of the Western economy part first. You right. mentioned South Korea and Japan specifically. I think, you know, certainly we're starting to see some uh, heightened anxieties here in, in the United States um, uh, over the past week. And I think that's that's what very much makes people nervous. Mm-hmm. I, I know when speaking with clients, in a, in a number of different states sort of across the country this week, they were surprised by the number of reported visitors uh, there were from the United States to China, particularly from the United States into what I'll call interior provinces of China, not just the Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Taiwan, sort of uh, you know quadrant of cities that we normally think of. And so I, I'm, I'm not altogether surprised that the Chinese have reacted this way. They, they do have a tendency to overreact uh, which we can take as a mild positive to the extent to which we've never seen the mandated uh, or voluntary quarantine of 50 million people plus right. uh, outside of the the uh, aspects of war. Uh, and so that that may very well have or or lead to a curtailing of the spread of the virus within China. I'm far from expert, nor are we at the firm, uh, but there's 80,000, just slightly over 80,000 cases globally, 77,000 of which uh, are, are are in mainland China. Right. And so to the extent to which that we do see a little bit of a, of a curtailing of that activity, I think that would lend uh, a lot of uh, a lot of support to the idea that we're moving uh, that we're moving past it. So that that's that's a, a very real uh, element of it is this idea that it's become westernized. Right. And but you're not worried about or you think the chances of a global recession are what that this could actually cause. I mean, just anecdotally, I'm thinking about people are not, you know, traveling. Uh, They're really, you know, rethinking uh, some of their certainly supply chain decisions. Um, 
it might be more broad than just supply chain mm-hmm. choices because supply chains in and of themselves are, are sort of sticky elements. They require a lot of planning right. uh, by corporations to move. Uh, you know, oftentimes there's sort of modest backup plans, but they're meant for very temporary disruption or system maintenance, that sort of thing. Uh, and 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 so we're sort of past the point uh, where uh, we'd be able to quickly move supply chains. But in this in this case, it's interesting to note that a, a lot of the corporate moves that were taking place during our trade negotiations actually resulted in supply chain uh, migration. And so companies actually were, in, a, in an odd way, ahead of the game uh, as, a result, as it relates to uh, supply chain management. But I think the broadening out of that, of that conceptually is this idea that, and again, I don't, I don't want to be crass or, or look past the very human uh, toll that, that right. the virus is certainly having uh, on, on individuals uh, who, who get it and even those around them and those that are quarantined. But you can see it's the reaction to the virus more than the virus itself um, that is probably having the impact on economic activity. That, that second guessing of doing something social where there's a non-social alternative, dining out, taking in a show, um, commute uh, in in uh, cities the world over that 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 sort of activity or that sort of lack of activity is what's going to really dr- grind the economy to a halt not just in China where we think even though the semi official estimates suggest growth could slip from five uh, excuse me from six to five or four and a half percent in the first quarter we would not be altogether surprised if Chinese growth in China slipped down to zero or, or turned negative in the first quarter. Because remember, they were sort of out of work for the New Year holiday the first two weeks of the year. Mm-hmm, and then and extended now, it. really since the beginning of February, have been you know, quarantined one way or the other. Um, and it's, you know, it's, we're coming up on March tomorrow morning. So, you know, it, the, the, the chances are, are diminishing that the first quarter is going to be anything less than uh, really bad for Chinese economic data. Right. So it's really the human reaction to the disease uh, that that could that is is the biggest unknown, right? And or it's certainly a big unknown, and that that it, could definitely have the economic impact that the the disease itself might not have. Very much so. And right. You mentioned as as we were sitting down that you know we had a couple of things that the that the economy is grappling with, and you mentioned you know tensions with Iran, which was a uh, you know, a, a sort of a, an uncertainty. We've been dealing with cold tensions and warmer tensions, and, and unfortunately, it's sometimes hotter tensions with Iran for 40 years. Mm-hmm. But there was a very acute example where we, again, not to be flippant, exchanged, you know, assassinations and attacks there over the New Year holiday, and the regime in Iran smartly uh, pulled back. And Trump, I think, at his most presidential moment, uh, whether you love the guy or hate the guy, at his most presidential moment, he took the advice or kept some counsel that said, I'll back down too. And so we were sort of returned to detente. But you can see there's an uncertainty that surrounds war, but there's also a very known, generally very known geographic impact of war, mm-hmm. right? So when you think about the conventional wars that the U.S. has fought over time, we knew exactly what theaters we were fighting in. That's why when we had these non-state actor military engagements, there's a heightened level of uncertainty. So the virus has some analogs to that because it can travel from a province in the middle of China that almost nobody has heard of in the Western world right. to its largest cities, to its Western trading partners, and then all the way to your backyard. And that, that and to is Iran. Investor uncertainty, right? And certainly, you know, it's it's now in Iran, uh, which is definitely an issue for them. The Indeed. Fed is monitoring the spread of the virus. Could it trigger an interest cut 
or two? Yeah, so the Fed, it's our sense that for a number of reasons, the Fed is very loath to make monetary policy for more additionally accommodative in the near term. Mm-hmm. They, are, they have certainly acknowledged the virus and the likelihood of the virus to impact Chinese growth. They have not quite acquiesced to the impact that uh, that negativity would have on U.S. growth, which as they continue to remind us is their, their sole mandate. But I think that you know, when we look at what is happening in the bond market and we see 10-year Treasury yields down, uh, you know, flirting with the sort of the 1.3% level and and, uh, and getting even lower than that, right, it certainly lows. opens up a question uh, to the Fed, a very pointed question by the market to say, you, you might need to cut. It would. It's our sense that the Fed would not like to do that quickly, but if they had to do it, they would probably want to take cover under some sort of negative or disappointing domestic data, like a payroll employment print that we'll get next week. So uh, it's probably going to take a little bit more for the Fed uh, to sort of come through and do easings at this point. Mm-hmm. An- another development that you've been talking to clients about with potential market impact is the emergence of Bernie Sanders as a leading Democratic candidate for president. What's your assessment of his market impact? Well, you know, holding one's political cards fairly close to the vest, it it, it really is decidedly negative, and it is the antithesis of what the Trump presidency, the Trump administration has espoused from a policy standpoint. So again, sort of separating uh, the men in this case from 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 the uh, from the policies, whether you like President Trump or not personally, you know, his his policies are generally domestic oriented, very pro growth, you know, not sort of as worried about the federal uh, deficits and, and trying to really go for it uh, as it relates to risk assets, which is why he continues to job on the Fed uh, to move rates lower. Senator Sanders' policies by Aldane uh, really appear to be the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we would be concerned overall about a Sanders presidency. I'd be less concerned about, say, uh, you know, his, his becoming the, uh, the nominated Democratic candidate. But I think what happened is well, right at the time we were starting to see some global concern about the coronavirus is people had not generally paid attention to what the policy platform of the Democratic Party was going to be this presidential cycle. We had as many as 19 declared candidates standing on debate stages. It was a lot of uh, noise and difficult to discern the news. Senator Sanders' polling really started to ramp up in uh, mid to late January, right on time for success at the Iowa caucus, should that have gone off as it as it as it was prescribed to go. He's now followed it up with with very clear wins in New Hampshire and Nevada, and he's on to South Carolina. So um, people are now focusing the mind on Senator Sanders and what he, uh, you know, what he believes should be the right policy direction of this country. And I think investors generally, uh, that makes them nervous. I would offer one data point. Um, Our clients, we survey them frequently on their outlook for a variety of things, sundry forecasts and outlooks and whatnot. As many as 80% on a very consistent basis of our clients continue to think that Trump will be reelected. That includes surveys we've taken in, in relatively more liberal areas like Massachusetts and California. So at the at the moment they're not willing to admit they think Sanders will be elected, but they are certainly starting to acknowledge the fact that he may well be the nominee. How reliable are they as a, a barometer of what happens? Yeah, pr- pretty pretty reliable uh-huh. at this at this level. I say when you get down to the final two, I would say we also had 
a very high percentages of clients that thought uh, Secretary Clinton would be elected president. Of course, right. she wasn't. Right. Um, but it, at the nominating level, these surveys tend to be fairly prescient. And, and what's more, uh, historically, if we look at sort of the uh, inertia that the Sanders campaign has, you know, going from Iowa to New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, South Carolina, et cetera, and then Super Tuesday, it could well be Bernie and the rest of the pack uh, when we emerge from Super Tuesday. But you've also been telling clients that uh, that basically that that the possibility of a Sanders win in the uh, the presidential election itself, it, it's really not been discounted in the market at all, right? So the market is, uh, it's a, that's a potential if he were to win, that could be a, a potential issue, a big issue yeah, for there, the market. No, so you're spot the on. Risk. I mean, it's, decidedly, uh, it's a decidedly negative catalyst that hasn't been fully exploited, which is to say there, there may well come a time uh, should Senator Sanders sort of get the nomination, which we right now would suspect that he will, where for one reason or another, it looks as though he is closing uh, the probabilities relative to President Trump and maybe even pulling ahead in, in certain polls or in an aggregate of polls. And, and that is going to that is very likely going to lead to the market you know, moving lower uh, as the market tries to assess his, his his general election probabilities. And that could be, you know, as could be any time, certainly. But as we start to coalesce around Sanders as the nominee and think about, um, you know, who his uh, potential running mate might be, it, it could extend this sort of sloppy sledding we're seeing in the market, you know, out into the second quarter and into the third quarter. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, the year is really starting to to slip away from you. Right. One of your co-founders and your partners at Strategus, Jason Trenert, coined the acronym TINA, meaning there is no alternative to stocks years ago. And yeah. you manage portfolios at Strategus Asset Management. Is, is that still the case that there really is no alternative to stocks? It, it generally is because of the overall arc of financial repression and low interest rates, which sort of lend themselves when growth is scarce to focus investors' attention on the time horizon where it's uncertain whether growth will recover. And, and so you have uh, technology shares will do very well and defensive shares will do very well as an odd barbell. Uh, and it doesn't leave you a lot of alternatives. I think when you're, when you're dealing with very acute episodes as we are right now and trying to uh, handicap what the, the broader implications of coronavirus will be, it's gonna make it difficult for equity investors to sort of feel firmly footed uh, here for maybe a week or another couple of weeks. And you can see evidence of that in the, in the behavior in the bond market. So when we look out a month or three months or six or, or off into the year end, we, we do remain uh, very positive on the outlook for the economy in general, stocks in particular. Uh, and I think you know, we, we are of the view that uh, sort of the cyclical elements of the economy will reaccelerate, which puts a little bit of bid into, into value shares. But if we refocus the mind on the very near term, you know, equity volatility will be heightened the VIX elevated, and the bond market, uh, the ultimate safe haven. And, and particularly when some alternative safe havens like yen, for geographic reasons, uh, aren't holding up their historical end of the bargain. Right. And Nick, at the end of every Wealth Truck interview, we always ask our guests if there's one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that we should all own some of. Do you want to give us one? Yeah, I, listen. We we are we, we remain very very comfortable on the idea of the of the domestic value stock. It has been uh, a, a serial underperformer uh, to the extent to which we have been, as I mentioned a moment ago, engaged in this perpetual uh, phase of um, financial repression. And so, when you start to think about industrial cyclicals, 
we absolutely own them in our client portfolios. I absolutely own them personally. Uh, and we will go through ebbs and flows uh, as we have over the past month. But investors should be clear-sighted um, that uh, you know these these are long-term investments that will hold up very very well. And and as the economy finds its footing, whether that's through a recession or not, we are definitely into large-cap value stocks. All right, Nick Bonsack, thanks so much for joining us on Wealth Track. We really appreciate it. And Nick is the co-founder and partner of Strategus Research Partners and CEO of Strategus Asset Management. So thanks for your update and your advice, Nick. We really do thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. And thank you, our audience, for joining us. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And as we always say on Wealth Track, make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. <laughs>